Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. You are at The Glenn Show uh, at uh, Substack.com and at uh, the Glenn Lowry YouTube channel, which you find described in the uh, accompanying text. Uh, but this is The Glenn Show, and I'm with David Kaiser. David is a, is a historian. Uh, he has taught at Carnegie Mellon and at the Naval War College for many years and also at Williams College. He's a PhD from Harvard. He and I are contemporaries from Cambridge in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, a historian whom I've spoken with here before at the Glenn Show about his book, A Life in History, a memoir that recounts his many years uh, as a historian, a historian, historically oriented intellectual, and the changes that have happened in the American Academy over the course of his lifetime. So I'm very happy to welcome David to the Glenn Show. How are you doing, David? I'm doing very well, Glenn, and thanks again for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, we're having this conversation because you've been insistent in bringing to my attention uh, the problem of the influence of contemporary political uh, currents of uh, anti-racism or whatever it might be. Uh on the way that history is 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 written and and the way that it's interpreted, and uh, I just thought we only began to scratch the surface of that subject in our last conversation. Um, I'm particularly interested in your thoughts about how the reading of the uh, racial inequality problem in contemporary America as a consequence of historical racism. The, structural or systemic racism argument that's a, employed on behalf of all manner of political program of reparations, of affirmative action, and so on. I'm particularly interested in that, but I'm also just interested more generally in your perspective as a historian on how history is being used in the service of, uh, you know, of different kinds of political aspiration and so on. So that just setting the stage and uh, giving you an opportunity to uh, share some of your own uh, thoughts about this about this general subject. Okay, well, what I specifically want to get to in a minute is a reinterpretation, if you want to call it that, of the New Deal era and also the immediate post-war era uh, by woke people to suggest that black Americans were intentionally blocked from receiving the benefits uh, of programs in the New Deal and in the post-war period, and that that left them further behind white Americans. And yes, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has said this very bluntly, and I'm sure he's not the only one, that that's one reason they uh, deserve reparations. Now, as I've said to you privately, uh, I've gotten very interested in this. I mean, I've always been very interested in American domestic politics, although most of my writing is about foreign policy and things like that. I did write a book called No End Save Victory, How FDR Led the Nation Into War, about 1940 and 41, which did involve a lot of domestic questions and some racial questions. Um, now, but, but what I want to say is I've seen this movie before in a different context, in that I've seen how contemporary politics can change the way historians are viewing something and in a very distorted way. And the previous example I want to talk about is about the Cold War. And of course, for the first 20 years of the Cold War or so, 
from the mid-40s until the mid-60s, there was an almost unanimous consensus in the US that it was necessary that we were on the side of the angels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were a few dissenters, but they were really on the margins. Uh, then, however, along came the Vietnam War, uh, the origins of which I've also written a long book about. It, it was a genuine catastrophe. It was a genuine terrible mistake. But it became the spur to reevaluate the whole Cold War in all kinds of ways and to suggest that this was just, Vietnam was just one more example of the US being the aggressor, of the US being on the wrong side of the history. Of history. Um, the US had been too unkind to the communists in the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for instance, it, it was by an amazing coincidence in 1965 that an economist named Garel Perovitz uh, brought out a short book called Atomic Diplomacy, Hiroshima and Potsdam, in which he argued that the real reason we dropped the atomic bomb on the Japanese, which he said we didn't need to do to end the war, was to intimidate the Soviet Union. And there, were, there, there had already been a number of books, one by William Appleman Williams. Uh, there was shortly thereafter a book by Gabriel Coco, arguing that the key to our policy wasn't resisting communism, it was promoting capitalism all over the world. That's why we made a lot of uh, particular decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And this became very popular in the late 1960s as part of the general attack on everything that our parents and grandparents had done, basically, that you and I witnessed firsthand at Harvard and Northwestern uh, in those years. And, David, uh, let me interrupt just sure. for a minute, just okay, for a minute. Sure. I just want to slow you down because there's just so much information that's flowing over here. Sure. So we're going to get eventually to the this. Uh, interpretation or misreading historically of, about the New Deal as yes. having left blacks out. We're going to get to that very but shortly. You want, Glenn, you want I us to you. understand. You want you want us to understand a, a more general uh, yes. defect or tick in historiography, which which has to do with misreading something that happened because of something that happened after that fact that uh, uh, makes it. Exactly. Preferable to see history in a particular way. And you're going to use the Cold War as an illustration of that. And Vietnam is the thing that happened. It's the thing that happened that is making people re yes. read the Cold War in a way that you think is, is inaccurate uh, relative to what it actually was. But you're saying the same kind of thing is happening with respect to the New Deal. Exactly. And I, I just want to clarify that. I just want to clarify because we're off into dropping the. Uh, yep. The bomb and all of that. But but I get you. I get you that, you know, history in the service of ex post facto reinterpretation on behalf of some political yes. program can be a real problem. That's I, that's I, what you're I, talking about. That is what I'm talking about. I need one more minute to, to okay. go into part of that story again. In 1973, a historian named Robert James Maddox brought out a book called The New Left and the Origins of the Cold War. And he showed in just a couple of hundred biting pages uh, that when you check the footnotes of these new works, you didn't find what they claimed you would find. Uh, and often, you find almost the opposite of what they claimed. And this is something I ran into a lot in my career later on. Now, again, that, that book came out in 1973. It got a lead review in the New York Times Book Review, as I remember. But it really had no major impact on the popularity of, of these ideas. 
which actually, thanks to wokeness, I think, they're getting a new lease on life now uh, in analyses of the, the eternal wickedness of the American empire, et cetera, et cetera, such as your friend, Daniel Beisner, who I admire. Besner, Besner, Daniel Besner. And, and yeah. I, I just want to interrupt again because I want yeah. to ask you very specifically about sure. that. Okay, go ahead. Uh, because there's one way of reading the Cold War, which is, the union of social socialist socialist republics, oh my God, a force for evil in the world and their nuclear arm to the teeth. We stood them down uh, against the threat of nuclear annihilation and thereby saved the world. Okay, that's putting a nice little bow on it, but that's one way of reading it. Daniel's way of reading it is exactly the opposite. Yes. There really was no threat from the Soviet Union. We needed right. to justify the military industrial complex. We made a boogaboo uh, enemy out of somebody who was just trying to get by in the world. That's the Union of Socialist Repu- Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and so on. And, and blood is on our hands. Now, I mean, it really matters which one of those we we adopt as the story. Well, uh, my response would be that the the first view is certainly not completely accurate, but it's more accurate. Now, let, let, let me just try to summarize very quickly. Was there a Soviet threat in critical areas such as Western Europe and Japan? Yes. I mean, it may have been political at least as much as military, but it was there. Was the Soviet Union going to try to develop a nuclear arsenal? Absolutely, without question. Remember, we offered in 1946 to turn the bombs over to international control. Stalin wasn't interested. The minute the secret was out, okay, at Hiroshima, that this thing existed and this worked, he was going to have it. And within a few years, he did. Now, did the United States, especially in the third world, make a lot of terrible mistakes fighting the Cold War? Yes, without question. My book about the origins of the Vietnam War is called American Tragedy. So that gives you some sense of how I feel about that. And, and many others do, too. The other thing that I think Daniel um, leaves out is that whether or not it was completely accurate, and it wasn't completely accurate, there was no way that American policymakers coming out of the Second World War could not have been influenced by their experience with Germany and Japan in that war in dealing with the Soviet Union. In other words, they made assumptions about expansionist totalitarian regimes and what they were capable of. And it's true that the Soviet Union wasn't Nazi Germany. It's true that they weren't determined to conquer the world. But uh, they were a totalitarian, ideological, somewhat expansionist power. I also thought Daniel went a little off the track uh, when he talked about the possibility of detente after the death of Stalin. Now, now again, there's something to that. And, And Daniel's obviously a very smart guy. Uh, the Malenkov regime that came in did want some detente. Uh, they, that, that did lead to the end of the Korean War, I'm convinced, and to some conversations and, and whatnot. But they weren't willing to give up the Soviet empire. And meanwhile, this is what he left out, Malenkov didn't last very long. He gave way to Khrushchev, who was rhetorically and in other ways very aggressive, who was constantly threatening war over Berlin, and then, of course, eventually moved the missiles into Cuba, 
and and was uh, just a pretty scary guy, as you and I we, are old enough we to remember. We will bury you. That, that, the the, the right. line, we will bury you, is the one that I remember from my childhood. <laughs> well, actually, a good friend of mine who's, is, is a lot more conservative than I am and, and who knows Russian and is a Russian historian said, the real translation of that should have been, we will attend your funeral, okay? Which is a little different. Now, as it turns out, it was we who attended his fun their funeral in 1989. But, but I think we've, uh, we've pushed this far enough. What I'm saying is that um, the, the pattern is that, that because of current events, because of a new generation, for all kinds of reasons, th this new view of something in history becomes popular. And some people will stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, you, you know, you're really building this more or less out of whole cloth, and it, it, you're, you've got a lot of problems here. But if the political cause is vibrant enough and popular enough, that won't help very much, except among a few dedicated contrarians, uh, like the kind of people you like to have on the show. And, and that's <laughs> how I, I think of myself, who, who just like to make up their own mind. But, but okay. with all that said, we, we can move into the, the current yeah, but be, be, Before yeah. we do, I, okay, I, sure. have a meta, I have a meta question. I mean, because we're going to get to this question of interpreting the New Deal. Right. And the role of, to the extent that blacks were excluded, that had plays in contemporary racial disparity. We're going to get to that question. But I, I have to ask this question, and this is about historiography. This is about yes. the thing that I know you care so much about, having spent a life in history. And the, the question I want to ask is, I would have thought that the phenomenon that you are describing of contemporary political passions coloring the interpretation of the past would be a problem of journalism, but not a problem of <laughs> academic historical scholarship. I would have thought that the very point of having a university's history department with all of the tenure and all of the peer review and all of the sense of the ages, you know, going all the way back, I, I would have thought that the very point of that was to avoid the disease that you have put your finger on, to, to be above the passions of the moment. So I have to ask what has happened to history well, if I, the disease is such as you say? Well, I can answer that. I, I think that was thought to be the point. I think that objectivity was defended by a lot of very important and very great historians on a lot of topics. Uh, for instance, uh, there was a highly politicized controversy in the 1920s and 30s over who started the First World War. The, Germany had been blamed for it in the Versailles Treaty. That gave German, Germany and German historians a huge interest in trying to prove that that wasn't so. Uh, some Americans sided with the Germans, more or less. That went on and on. Eventually, some very great works were written, including some by a German later, um, showing that, in fact, they were very largely responsible. But it's always been a struggle. But what's happened, Glenn, is the idea that there isn't really such a thing as objective truth, that people's thoughts and beliefs are a function of their demography, uh, their race, their gender, possibly even their sexual orientation. And therefore, uh, the goal of academia is not to establish one objective truth. The goal is to allow the voices that have not been heard enough um, up until now to be heard. 
And it becomes a taboo to question the validity, in particular, of what a member of an oppressed group says about their history. And, and that, that is the dominant ideology now. So that's what delivered the coup de grace to the ideal of objectivity, I would say. Okay, and I think you do say so at length in um, your memoir, uh, A Life in History. Yes. As I recall. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Your they're going to call us old men, though, David. You know, they're well. going to they're going to say we don't get it that, you know, it's and not just because you're white and because I'm not white. I'm, I'm but I'm old. <laughs> I'm old like you. <laughs> no, I mean, they're going to say we just don't get it. And uh, I don't know what there is to be done. I feel like I'm, you know, inveighing against, you know, it's 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 quixotic. this this uh, windmill tilt that we're engaged in trying to defend objectivity. Well, we can say that, Glenn, but, but look, uh, I have gotten so much out of my indirect contact with you and John McWhorter uh, over the last few years. And part of it has been the other people I've been introduced to, such as Coleman Hughes. I mean, we haven't been introduced in a face-to-face -face sense, although I hope that will happen. But I listen to him as regularly as you now. And now I discovered uh, Samuel Cronin, who wrote a piece that we both read. And what is so wonderful is that you have young people like that. And actually, Coleman Hughes is very good at finding them uh, on his podcast. He, he finds them all over the place, who have been through this educational system where this is what they were being given. But it, it's a wonderful thing about human nature. Uh, you can find this in Solzhenitsyn, too, in the first circle, that, that there are some young people who just won't swallow it. And, and for whatever reason, uh, well, it's kind of Orwellian. They are not going to listen if you tell them two plus two equals five. And, and that is what gives me real hope for the future, uh, is that w we are still turning out people like that, despite what has happened in the educational system. Uh, thank you. Um, and yeah, 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 I'm with you 100%. And I feel blessed to actually get revitalized by my relationships with some of these young people. Sure. But, but okay, let's get back to cases at hand. Uh, what about the New Deal? What about blacks being excluded? Not just Ta-Nehisi Coates, but as you know, Ira yeah. Katznelson, a very distinguished oh, yes. political scientist and historian yes. at Columbia, his book, uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. I've taught that book over the years. I remember when that book first came out, maybe 20, 25 years ago. I can't remember exactly. But but he's a serious, he's a serious guy, Ira Katznelson. And... Yes. Uh, what, what I used to teach uncritically in my classes was uh, the Southern uh, segregationist uh, committee chairs in Congress that Roosevelt needed to get his package through were hell-bent on defending the Jim Crow regime from the incursions of the federal government through the New Deal programs, and therefore, therefore, uh, Farm laborers and domestics were excluded from the wage and hour protections of the New Deal, and uh, local commissars got to administer uh, aid to families with dependent children in a discriminatory way. And I could go on. You're the historian. I won't try to do that. I'll just say I took it as given, man. I took it as given that Katz Nelson was right that the New Deal had excluded uh, blacks because that was the necessary compromise that Roosevelt had to make with the Southern uh, Committee, Democratic Party committee chairs. 
And that a similar kind of thing went on with the GI Bill, where because of segregation in the armed services and blacks not being able to uh, uh, serve their country to the same extent with an equal opportunity, they were excluded from from the uh, benefits of this thing. He calls it affirmative action was white. I mean, he's, yeah. he couldn't be any more explicit than that. And and so on, you know, um, the growth of suburbs and the ability of blacks again, et cetera, et cetera. So th- if you're telling me that that narrative is wrong, that's a major thing to be saying. It is not completely wrong. There are some very good things in that book, which I've been through lately in, in preparation for this. And it, for instance, there's a very good chapter about the Southern attempts, which were quite successful, to roll back union power with the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. And and I don't think he mentioned it, but also the Landrum-Griffin Act about 10 years later, 12 years later, which was similar, so that the South wouldn't be unionized. Now, again, uh, undoubtedly, that didn't help black workers in the South, but that was not the main reason. This was part of a much broader Southern strategy that, that had a tremendous impact on the country that we're going to compete and, and we're going to get stronger relative to the North by not having unions, by having cheaper labor, and by getting industry to move to us. And that did work to a significant extent for about 20 years, beginning with all the textile factories that moved from New England, where you can still see textile ghost towns right around me here, um, and around you, probably. And uh, they did move to uh, the southern states. Now, unfortunately, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, and in subsequent decades, that hasn't worked out for the South because the factories uh, kept going and then moved to Latin America. But for the time being, it, it worked. So, so that was a good chapter. Um, the point about the administering of AEFDC uh, is, is undoubtedly true. But let's go to the Social Security issue, which, which is one of the critical ones. Social Security did exclude originally, it's a point we got to get to also, uh, farm laborers and domestics. Now, why did it? Now, there are several monographs, and, and the one I looked at most closely was a work of public history. It was written inside the Social Security Administration fairly recently, but it was very well researched. Um, the, sec- the Treasury Department was going to administer the program. The original recommendation from a committee that Roosevelt had appointed was to include uh, those workers. But before the bill even went to Congress, Henry Morgenthau, the Secretary of the Treasury, and his people decided it is going to be too hard politically to administer it for uh, domestics and farm laborers, and we should start with industrial workers. Now, this is one of the first big things to throw in, because if you, if you read Cass Nelson or certain other people, it sounds like these black domestics and farm laborers were the only people who were eliminated, who were not included in Social Security. Now, in fact, huge numbers of people were not included originally. All professional people were not included. All government employees at every level, state, federal, local, were not included. Anybody who worked for a nonprofit, was not included. It was basically a program for industrial workers. That's what it was. So that's the way it went to Congress. Now, this study pointed out that at the hearings, 
there was one man, a very interesting man, Charles Hamilton Houston. I would imagine I've heard you know of that him. name. Yes. I've heard of him. Yes, he was the dean of Howard Law School. Indeed. And he was largely responsible, as I learned in college in those benighted late 60s, from a white Southerner, by the way, he was largely responsible for Brown versus Board of Education because he designed the whole strategy that led to it, and Thurgood Marshall was his favorite student. So he testified, and, and he said, you should include domestics and farm laborers, but actually he went way beyond that. He didn't like the whole program. He wanted to throw the whole thing out and just have a universal cash benefit for everybody, uh, which wasn't going to happen. But that was the only time that came up. Um, so they and all those people. Now, so how does, Cass, how does Katz Nelson deal with this? Well, he talks about not the study I read, which was subsequent, but an earlier one that reached exactly the same conclusion, that it was Treasury and it was because they didn't want to administer it. And he says, this argument is not persuasive. And he quotes another book called, uh, let's see, I think it's, sh yeah, Shifting the Color Line by a fellow named Robert Lieberman. Oh, and, yeah, I know Robert Lieberman. That. Yes. Who was also at Columbia, I think, yeah. uh, when that book was, uh, that's uh, Bob right. Lieberman's he, book was published. That's right. Now, Lieberman's book is a very good book. And again, the problem is it doesn't say what Cass Nelson is claiming it says about Social Security. It, 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 he's very scrupulous, and, and he says it was Treasury. Uh, he also makes some fascinating points about the impact of Social Security. And, and, and he has charts. And he shows that, yes, the percentage of black workers who got benefits when they started paying benefits was lower because so many of them were in these excluded occupations. Although there's another point about that that I have to make in a second. Okay, that was true. However, they received a surprisingly higher portion of the initial benefits that were paid out, okay, relative to how many of them there were. Well, why was that? Well, the reason for that was, under the law, there was a minimum benefit that everybody had to get, even if your contributions wouldn't justify such a benefit. And a lot of them were under that. But the big bottom line point about domestic and agricultural workers is this. There were four times as many white agricultural workers as black agricultural workers when this bill was passed. There were twice as many white domestic servants as there were black domestic servants. So if you're going to buy the idea that the exclusion was designed to hurt black people and keep holding them down, you would have to believe that white policymakers hated black people so much that they were also willing to screw much larger numbers of white people just for the sake of holding the black people down. I don't believe that. I found another interesting quote, uh, because then the same thing happened with, with the Wagner Act uh, about uh, you know, who's going to be able to organize for mm -hmm. union labor, and it happened with the Fair Labor Standards Act with the minimum wage. And, now, let me just summarize sure. for a minute, David. Okay, sure. uh, again, there's a lot of information on the table. So we've been talking specifically about Ira Katznelson's book, When Affirmative Action Was White, which is a history of the New Deal that you think has merit in certain respects, but that you also think gives support to what in the fullness of consideration is a false narrative about the anti-black exclusionary intention of the 
especially the Social Security Act. And we've been focusing on the extent to which the exclusion of domestic workers and uh, farm laborers from the protections of that act and the benefits of that act were anti-Black. And you've, you've concluded that that is a, a, an inaccurate way of reading the intention of the uh, legislation in that uh, both more whites than Blacks were, were uh, affected and th- that uh, there were administrative reasons for undertaking these provisions or exclusions. Uh, how are you going to actually enforce the requirements maybe more so easily to do so in an industrial employment than in a informal employment or rural employment context. So, so we're saying that. And then, then we're into this kind of uh, secondary literature, and you, you've invoked Robert uh, Lieberman's book and so on. But I just wanted to kind of keep us, you know, keep keep some kind of structure on it. Um, wh- what's next? Oh, labor relations, the Wagner Act, and. Yeah. and I was very intrigued by this. This is the first time I've heard this. So there was a concerted effort among Southern leaders to attract industry within the United States from the North to the South, cheap labor, no unions, uh, no hassle. This is our strategy, uh, which worked for a while, but didn't work in the long run because that same strategy can be employed in a globalizing context and uh, the jobs end up in the Southeast Asia or somewhere like that. But, uh, uh, it it it's it it the the simplistic one dimensional imputation of anti black motives to actors in this context is what's coming across to me yes. that that really misreads it and then once you do that you are you're forced to distinguish between what might be an adverse incidence on African American well being yes. of the formulation and an intent but yes. it's the intent that is the a thing that gives the reparations argument its weight. If if blacks have oh. been harmed in this way, then they should be made whole for the fact that that harm was inflicted on them. Well, however, any white person who could prove ancestry from a white domestic servant or farm laborer would, you would think, be just as entitled to the same reparation if, if you were going to make that argument. Now, the other thing I do want to mention about the Social Security thing is, though, is... Uh, they fixed that, Congress did, in the early 1950s. They began covering those workers. And, and certainly, as you and I know, the, the white Southern legislators were not any more pro-civil rights at that point than they had been in the 30s, really. And they were under more pressure. So th- that, that is another interesting fact. Um, now, what I was going to say, I'll, I'll just be very quick, um, I, I found a quote from a floor debate about the Federal Labor Standards Act uh, from a a congressman from Iowa. And and he said he was going to vote against the bill. Uh, No, he would vote against including farm laborers because that would be so unfair to farmers. And, you you know, they couldn't afford it. They were still doing badly, so why do we want to put this pressure on them? Now, certainly, uh, you would have looked pretty hard, I think, to find any black farm laborers in Iowa. In, in 1938, you might have found a few, right. but you wouldn't have found very many. So, so again, it it wasn't that simple. But I think actually, though, about the reparations argument, and this goes again to the housing issue, which we should get into. Yeah, uh, I'd like to. That 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 Ta-Nehisi Coates is very blunt. That this is what kept black people from acquiring more wealth 
And and that's why we need to make good on that right now. David, yeah. I think he says Tanahasi. I think he pronounces okay. it Tanahasi, notwithstanding the H I S I. All right, Tanahasi. Okay, very, yeah. very fine. All right. Uh, okay, so. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want us to lose track of the GI Bill either. Uh, yes. Did you ha you have some things you want to say about I that? Do. So I do. You, I do. Yeah, go ahead. First of all, everybody has to admit this, agree on this. There, there's no formal exclusion of any veteran from any benefit in the GI Bill. Uh, I mean, it, it's a bill for all veterans, period. Now, the, the black troops had served. They had served often under very difficult conditions. They had served under segregated units. Part of my book about 1940 and 41 is about the initial controversy about that, which is, is quite depressing reading, although there's some heroic figures in it, but I won't get into that. They had served under segregated units. Some of them had had terrible problems with the military justice system and, and with white troops, et cetera. And, and they had been largely, although not completely, excluded from combat units. There were some combat units that um, performed very well, and one was a tanker unit that, that fought for General Patton and whom he spoke very highly of. The issue with the GI Bill, and it's a real issue, was their ability to take advantage of some of the benefits, and particularly the education benefit. If you wanted to take advantage of the college benefit, you had to be able to go to college. Uh, first of all, you had to be quali qualified to go to college probably the average educational level of black veterans was lower because the schools, particularly in the South, were so bad. Secondly, obviously, the, most of the colleges, all the colleges in the South were segregated. So there were some places in historically black colleges, but probably not nearly enough. As a result, it is true that a lower proportion of black vet veterans uh, wound up uh, going to college on the GI Bill than white veterans. Actually, the one figure I found, and, and it's in a Snopes article, so I wouldn't exactly take it to the bank, but, but it claimed that 28% of white veterans went to college on the GI Bill uh, uh, and 14% of black veterans did. Now, that's a significant gap, obviously, but it doesn't mean no black veterans. Now, now again, the GI Bill uh, though, uh, stayed in the law. I, I'm sure a lot of Korean War veterans went. And, and actually, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So again, um, there is some truth to it, but uh, it was not complete exclusion by any means. And in the same way, uh, it was harder for black people to get access to some of the housing benefits for veterans. But at some point, I'm going to look at some of the figures I've developed about what actually was happening to the economic fortunes of black Americans, particularly in the 20 years after the war. And uh, they really are rather striking. And they show that something good was happening because black people, as well as white people, were in the lower half of our economy were making very rapid progress during that period. And that is the thing which, to me, casts the most doubt on the Coates kind of narrative. OK, well, this is a, a large point, the, the point that if you actually look at the outcome as opposed to the inputs, uh, 
That's right. You, you, you see progress. So the inputs couldn't have been but so bad if everybody is, if, if the rising tide is lifting black boats and white boats, boats alike. Um, on the GI Bill, because I want to get to this question about housing, which is a major part of Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument in that yeah. classic article on reparations, but which you always, you hear about redlining, you hear about uh, Levittown, you, you hear about growing suburbs that Blacks are excluded from, you hear about uh, interstate highways being built in cities in such a manner as to facilitate suburbanization, which promotes the segregation, which creates the ghettos that are so... Uh, problematic in uh, reflecting Black subordination in contemporary society. Um, but I want to ask a question about the GI Bill, which is, so you got to get in the military service before you're eligible to get the benefit. Yes. Conditional on eligibility, there's every reason to think that there wasn't an adverse distribution of benefits to Blacks. That, if I'm understanding you. Yeah. Uh, blacks may not have had the same take up because there were other conditions that constrained them. But what about eligibility in the first place? So now if I know that I have an armed services and you've spoken, I assume, about the army and not so much about the Navy or yeah. whatever. Yeah. If I know I've got an armed services which is hostile, I can't serve in combat units. It's a voluntary service. I mean, I'm not being conscripted. Uh, I don't I don't sign. Or am I being conscripted? Okay, oh, yes. do I get that wrong? They're being conscripted. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, oh forgive my ignorance. Forgive my ignorance. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, no, you know, no. I, actually, the Selective Service was still active when I was a teenager, so I, I should oh, know yes. that they were being conscripted. <laughs> well, I would uh, imagine, Glenn, okay, you're a year younger than I am, and actually, even that one year was was important at that particular moment in history, but... All of us had to at least think about our relationship to the Second Collective Service Act, and it did send me into the Army Reserves for six years. So, okay, yeah, so then I'm, like, I'm on okay. the wrong track here. There's no reason to yes. think that blacks were not as likely to serve in the armed forces in virtue of being black as a white would be to serve. No, except that uh, that they were rejected on medical grounds in larger numbers. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. However, however, Glenn, I'm glad you brought that up, and I want to say this because I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, we had that draft starting in 1940. I believe it stopped effectively, at least, for a few years in the late 40s, when we just hugely downsized the military. But then it started up again with Korea and continued until the early 70s, okay? And you had millions of young men from every walk of life, really, um, doing two years or going in the reserves or whatnot all that time. And I think that was a much neglected, not understood source of economic progress and of progress on racial issues um, for all Americans all that time. It, it taught a lot of people basic skills, it, it taught them how to function in an organization. Most important of all, you had white and black young men dealing with each other, living with each other day to day. I mean, I went through this and, and I saw the effect of it, although you also saw the effect of changes that were going on in 1971 in basic training when I was there, but I won't get into that. But, but that is something that was lost from American life when we got rid of the draft. And, and I think that was very, very unfortunate. 
for a lot of reasons, and one of them is race relations. Such a nice point. This is for men, though. Women weren't being conscripted. But universal service requirement for men, creating a kind of finishing school for uh, the late adolescents that uh, had resonance, had had big. And that's measurable. That's the kind of thing a historian, an economics historian could could try to look at, um, I, I would imagine. Uh, but let's talk about housing. And we, we've got a few yeah. minutes left here and I'm going to have to ring off because I've got, you know, another thing, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to, you know, the, the line is that uh, there was a big boom in uh, the post-1950, you know, growth of American uh, suburbs and so on. And blacks were excluded, uh, red line, uh, credit not available uh, and other things of the sort that I've alluded to, uh, suburbanization abetted by uh, the development of interstate highways that uh, bypass black communities and commute, et cetera, et cetera. Um, wh- what do you have to say about that aspect of the narrative that justifies in some people's minds uh, a claim of black uh, injury entitling us to reparation? Well, okay. There's a very detailed study of redlining that was writ- written just a couple of years ago by the Chicago Fed. You can find it online. It's a very difficult read. I mean, I hope you won't be offended, Glenn, but you economists, uh, when, when you want to make something hard to read, you're very, very good at that as a group. I'm, I'm not saying anything about you personally. I'll but, try not to take uh, that personally. <laughs> all right, please don't. But, uh, but some things did emerge from it. Um, the, the, the idea was to identify, it was called Area D, and then they, they drew around it in red, areas where it would be dangerous to promote mortgages. Now... It is true, and it's very depressing, that some of the evaluations of areas would list a significant black presence as a negative feature. However, most of the people in those areas were white, not black. Um, And in fact, that article that we've discussed by Samuel Cronin, who has also looked at this very carefully, he actually claims that even today, the largest number of people in those red line areas are, are white. And there's a large Hispanic population there now too, and, and also some blacks. Now they became blacker to some extent, perhaps as a result of redlining. But again, I wanna to go to the bottom line here. Um, and uh, this comes from another webpage that I want to commend everybody to called What Happened in 1971. Actually, it's entitled What the F Happened in 1971. And it's a series of (laughs) economic- What the F happened in 1971. (laughs) Right, because it's a series of economic tables, okay, various economic indicators, most of them having to do with the distribution of income uh, from the 30s until the present. And basically, the point of it is that up until 1971, a lot of things, about income distribution were going in a good way. And at that point, things flipped and things have been going in the opposite direction ever since. But there are a couple of tables having to do with race. And, um, okay, this one is about income. I'll get to the housing one in a minute. I'm sorry, the housing one came from somewhere else, but I'll give you that in a second. This is about income. Okay, in 1946, average black income was 50% of white income. In 1972, average black income was 68% of white income. So 
here we have a period of one of the highest, one of the highest growth periods in American history. Okay, everybody's doing much, much better. Now, at the end of that period, the black population is still doing worse, but they've been progressing faster than the white From period. 50% to 68% That's in right. 20 years. That's right. Um, and yes, during that period, this is another table, the income in the bottom 90% of the population, the whole population tripled. Now, the other thing is about housing, okay? And in 19, from 1940 to 1980, which is roughly the area of redlining, the number of owner-occupied white households, am I saying that right? In other words, the number of white households where they own their home went from about 43% to 75%, okay? And in that same period, the figure for black households goes from 21% to 56%. And it's a pretty wow. straight line on the graph. So again, yeah, the suburbs were segregated, most of them. That, that's true. There were, it was easier for white people to get mortgages. There was redlining. But nonetheless, in that period, black homeownership and therefore black wealth was making extraordinary gains. And then suddenly, around 1980, all, all these income and housing gains begin to slow. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, yeah, since 1980, the black homeownership rate, uh, according to a paper by Collins and Margo, that's where this came from, has yeah. fallen 4%. And, and, and that really is a staggering bunch of statistics that I, know I, Bob I Margo. pretend to explain as to what I know Robert Margo. He used to be my colleague at Boston University. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Redlining was a real thing. I, I remember this uh, photograph that's in Thomas yes. Segrew's Bancroft Prize winning book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. It shows on Eight Mile Avenue in Detroit, a wall that's a mile long and six feet high that he says uh, the uh, federal uh, authorities required as an underwriting requirement that the wall be constructed to bound a, a district where uh, federally underwritten loans were going to be made to finance housing development because blacks were on the other side of the wall and we needed the wall to keep the blacks from coming into the community. And that's a very, very powerful kind of metaphor for this exclusion narrative. You're telling me redlining happened and that some of the redlining was grounded in the uh, fact that blacks were in a neighborhood and people thought it would not make for a, a, a good uh, financial bet. That, well, but you're that, also that telling was me a factor they mentioned. I don't think it was fact the only mentioned. factor, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, okay. it wasn't the only thing that was going on, and and the neighborhoods were mostly white that were uh, yeah. subjected to this uh, to this kind of uh, restraint. But you're also saying, and this is so very powerful, if we look at what actually was happening for low-income people and for black people in the period between 1940 and 1970, it's yeah. damned good news. A whole That's lot right. better news than anything we could report for what has happened for them since. And black people rode that wave up just like everybody else. So a historically based argument that says blacks were excluded from the engine of prosperity is just wrong on its face. And the other side of that is also mentioned by Samuel Cronin and uh, in that article in Quillette. Okay, he talks about the wealth gap, today's wealth gap. Okay. If you look 
at the bottom 50% of white people in terms of wealth and the bottom 50% of black people in terms of wealth, there is almost no wealth gap at all. The entire gap is in the top 50%. And the reason, of course, that there's no wealth gap in the bottom 50% is that practically none of those people, white or black, have any significant wealth today. And, and again, that, that, that's a horrifying fact. Now, now Glenn, I, I know you may be running short on time, but I, I do want about two minutes at some point because there's something that I want to share with you and our listeners, which is another okay, I'm going to give you your two document. minutes. I'm gonna, I promise you the two minutes, but I got to say right. this about the wealth gap. I got to say this it. about the wealth gap. It's a little yeah. bit of a technical point, but the point you just made is so powerful. Okay, if you look at the bottom 50%, yes. the blacks and white gap is not that big, everybody, because it's zero for everybody. Okay, now just check this out. They use the median. All of these papers exactly. that are coming out of all of these research shops yeah. use the median of the wealth distribution. Now, the median happens to be the 50th percentile, okay? Everybody's at zero below the 50th percent. They use the median uh, as the measure. And then they take a ratio of the medians. Yeah. So the denominator, there's the, the, the white to black or the black to white, if, if, if you move a little bit from zero to, you know, 10,000 or 20,000, that ratio is going to look huge. So there's, you know, how do you lie with statistics? Well, one of the ways you lie with statistics is to take the ratio of medians and use that as an indicator of the relative status of the, of the two groups. Just had to get that point in. I'm sure. a fellow of the Econometric Society. <laughs> we don't sleep well at night when people do this kind of banditry with statistics. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Oh. But did you want to say anything more about uh, housing and wealth, or do you want your two minutes? Because I've, no, I've got no, maybe that, 10 minutes here before it. I have to sign off. But that's about it. What, what I want to do is I want to read everybody a historic document from 1940 to show that there are other ways to look at what's wrong with America uh, for both white and black people. Now, Glenn, since you grew up in Chicago, I would guess that you are familiar with the Chicago Defender. Oh, yeah, that's the African-American newspaper. Their offices were on South Michigan Avenue, okay. like okay. about 25th Street or something like that. I used to walk by that building. It was a historic old building where the Defender was being published. Oh, yeah, I, I loved, as a boy growing up in the 50s and 60s, I loved reading the Chicago Defender. Well, I read a good deal of it from the early 40s, and I was very impressed. But what I'm going to read from, I, I can't read the whole thing. It would take too long. But I, I promise you, I'm not cheating about this when we come to the most interesting point about this. This is an editorial from the first week in November 1940, giving a recommendation to their readers of who to vote for. So here we go. I'll, it starts out as follows. President Roosevelt's insistence on a democratic way of life has stirred the wrath of big business to the point of foaming at the mouth. The major reforms inaugurated by the present administration were intended to salvage the forgotten man and the neglected masses out of social chaos and economic oppression. But big business does not want such a program. It has never wanted it. The New Deal measures are too concerned with broad humanitarian principles for the comfort of those who believe in democracy, but democracy for the money changers, the industrial tycoons, the oil magnates, the wolves of Wall Street, and not for the lowly, the poor, and the unfortunate. 
The real issue of the campaign is not the third term, for which the masses don't give a tinker's damn. It's not national defense, although the question of a big army and a big navy is a horse every candidate likes to ride. It's not our foreign policy, for Mr. Roosevelt and Mr. Wilkie see eye to eye on the basic propositions involved and on the steps necessary to implement and assert our foreign policy. The real issue is Mr. Roosevelt and new idealism, and new dealism, I beg your pardon, which is Republican opponent attacks behind the mask of third term, national defense, relief, jobs, et cetera. And then he goes into a long attack on Wendell Wilkie, corporate lawyer who was running against Roosevelt. And then I'm going to go uh, to the end. Uh, he talks about, okay. When Roosevelt came into office in March 1933, banks were failing at the rate of 50 a day. In every city, every hamlet, distress, despair registered on the sad faces of a once proud and prosperous populace. That was the situation when Mr. Roosevelt stepped into the White House. Within a fortnight, by various humanitarian acts, these tragic and inexorable conditions changed. Roosevelt had restored hope and reestablished faith in the government. Bread lines gave way to relief jobs, WPA, PWA, NYA, CCC, and other sorely needed social and economic measures. And the people began singing, happy days are here again. Roosevelt had done it. President Roosevelt has placed himself squarely on the side of the people's interests against those of the money changers in the temple. No administration in our history has done more than the New Deal to achieve economic and social democracy. Roosevelt's defeat would be a victory not only for the dictators of Europe, but also for the financial moguls of USA. It would be suicidal for the masses to place their faith in Wendell Wilkie, who promises everything from a bag of peanuts to a shooting star. He is for big business, and big business is against the common people. Now, as you may have guessed, the thing that moves me to tears about that editorial in the environment we're in today is that there is not one word in it about race. There is no indication that this is a black newspaper. It's not aimed at black readers. They are speaking as citizens, and they are speaking on behalf of everybody and, and making very powerful points. And I feel that's the kind of spirit we need more of today all through the population. Thank you, David. David Kaiser, You're welcome. historian. Uh, the Negro newspaper, the Chicago Defender, 1940 editorial endorsing Franklin Delano Roosevelt for a third term. Uh, and this uh, appeal to our citizenship in this uh, great country across racial lines being as important to the civic health of our uh, republic in the year 2021 as it was in the year 1940. Thank you very much for that, David. And uh, we must continue the conversation. I like talking to a historian. It makes me feel good to you know, get some grounding uh, in the, in the thing. Uh, and it's a struggle that we're engaged in here to try to maintain a kind of intellectual integrity. And I think you're contributing to that. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for those kind words, Glenn. And thank you for what you've been doing here for all this time. And, uh, it, it, it's a big moment for me every week when there's a new episode to listen to. So that's kind of you to say, and, and we, we, we've got to meet face to face soon too. It's not that difficult to arrange. We're pretty nearby. Okay. I'm for that. <laughs>